Turn with me to Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. Now, don't panic. We're not into the apocalyptic literature. He's writing to the, to the uh, letters to the seven churches. These are penned by Christ. And we're going to look at one letter this morning. But while you're turning there, Revelation chapter 2, verse 8, I want to start sharing with you a new installment that I will share from time to time that I call... There we go. Bad theology of the week. Bad theology of the week. Now, I don't do a lot on social media, but I do uh, look through Facebook because we have a Facebook uh, page for First Baptist Church. And I see things posted on Facebook sometimes that just terrify me, horrify me, or make my blood boil. Uh, so I'm going to start mentioning some of it to you when I see just really bad doctrine that I call bad theology of the week. And so here's the winner this week. This is an actual article that's on Facebook. Do you see that? Is it ever okay for a pastor to smoke marijuana? Amen? All right. Now I'm going to share with you. Now, of course, there are tons of comments and shares, but I'll share with you just a couple of my favorites. Uh, one says, didn't Jesus say something about everything his father created was okay for consumption? Apparently, I guess he's eating uh, poison ivy with branch dressing as well. But anyway, or <laughs> by the way, if your theology involves the sentence or something like that, then you probably have bad theology or something like that. Marijuana is a natural plant, grows easily. <laughs> Apparently, he's, he knows it grows easily. How does he know that? And I do believe smoking is considered consumption. And somebody said, if it's legal, then yes. And that is the American mindset in a nutshell right there. If it's legal, then it must be okay. That's another sermon. Uh, why not? He's human. <laughs> why not? Isn't it one of God's plants? Little G, uh, I'm assuming that was accidental. Marijuana is made by God. Again, little G. So why can't he and alcohol uh, is, uh, uh, why can't he? Being, meaning, why can't I have it? And alcohol is made by man, but that's okay. <laughs> I don't understand the connection there. This one said, depends on the church and the pastor. <laughs> All right. Laurie Larkin says, for pain or the need to sleep. Now, how many of you have pain and need to sleep? Well, that's pretty much everybody. Yeah, so apparently we should all light up according to her. All right, here's my favorite one. Or next, uh, absolutely, with all he listens to, he deserves it. <laughs> Bad theology of the week. All right. Not one person mentioned anything about glaucoma or any actual medical problem. It's just, um, yeah, okay. All right. Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? These are the words of Christ. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. But be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you and praise you for the beauty of these words, this, this message, this letter of hope to this dear church. 
that in light of their struggles, you considered them rich. And you are the one who decides who's truly rich and truly poor. Help us to learn from these words today in Christ's name. Amen. Our message this morning is entitled, Let's Go to Church. Let's go to church. When I was a boy, going to church was a weekly tradition. We never missed, and I mean never. I don't remember ever in my life growing up us just deciding not to go. We got up every Sunday morning, put on our Sunday outfits, and headed to church, along with nearly everyone I knew. My parents were there, of course. My grandparents were there. My friends were there. My God was there. And our pastor was there. But I never asked the question why. It really wasn't even relevant as a boy. I knew why. <laughs> I had no choice. That's why. It wasn't later until I was in college that I began to understand the question, why should I go to church? I didn't ask that question when I was young. Or you might ask the question, why should I go to this church instead of another church? Some people will ask that question. So once I got into college, I was faced with the challenge of finding a new church home for the first time in my life. I thought it would be easy, but in fact, it was not. It took me actually a couple of years before I joined a church. I tried and tried, and what was interesting was I would go to a church, and some churches were better than others, but I didn't yet understand why some churches seemed to be better churches than others. And that was one of the lessons that I'd learned. I never really thought about it. What makes a good church a good church? What makes a bad church? And there are bad churches out there. So now, all of these years later, I'm confronted with the question, are we a good church? or a bad church. This was the purpose or, or a good part of the purpose that Christ wrote the seven letters to the churches in Asia Minor and to this church as well. You know, these letters uh, were intended by Christ to share with the churches a word of encouragement and a word of challenge. And so as he wrote the churches, he would talk about his commendation, those things that they were doing well and doing right and then he would talk about the problems that they had in that church and what was, what was a sticking point for them. And then he would give them a challenge, often with a warning, but then also a challenge of hope that if they overcame, they would receive reward from God. And so we saw that in this morning. Interestingly, to one of the churches in Laodicea, he had nothing good to say at all. It was all bad. But to two of the churches, the church in Smyrna, which I just read to you, and the church in Philadelphia, he had nothing bad to say to them. They weren't perfect churches, but they were great churches. And again, that begs the question, why did Christ consider these great churches so much so that he couldn't say a thing bad about them? If Christ were to pen a letter to you and I at First Baptist Church, what would he say to us? So today, if you're ever looking for a church home, you end up moving away from this place and you have to find another church home in another community, or you're here looking for a church home even now, you're just visiting, what should you look for? And what, what kind of church should we be? I would ask our members. What do we want them to look for 
in First Baptist Church. So today I want to give you three simple steps to finding a good church home. Now, I'm not telling you to leave, <laughs> but, but I do want to give you three good steps about finding a church home. And in these three steps, for those of you who are already members and committed to First Baptist Church, these are three challenges for you and I to do these things so that we can be what Christ would consider a great church. Here, the first step is this. I want you to ask yourself the question, does God want me here? Whatever your criteria is for a church, I want it to begin, and, and I believe the Lord expects it to end with, uh, begin with him. Not, do I like the music, or, or do they have the songs that I like? You understand, for God, the old hymns are in ancient Hebrew. <laughs> and so I heard the idea of old hymns or contemporary music or whatever. My concept of contemporary music is, is the Imperials. And my kids never even heard of them or truth. They were great. So, you know, different things for different people. But the first question is not what do I like or what do I want or what are the programs and ministries that account or that matter to me, but what does God want me to do? Does God want me here? In 1988, I was a seminary student in Fort Worth, and I was teaching a Sunday school class at a church there. I may have shared with you before, one cold winter day, I had a couple of seminary students come and visit, and I wanted them to come there. I needed help. So I was glad to see them. Unfortunately, that morning, our heater was acting up in church, and it was cold. And I mean cold. I know some of you are cold all the time. We have wonderful senior adult ladies, bless their hearts. They come with blankets and coats every, every Sunday because they can't get warm enough. If I made it warm enough for them, the rest of you would have to have fans. And so uh, most of you are, are very gracious and you don't complain about the temperature. And I thank you for that. But this Sunday, it was really cold in the sanctuary. When it was over, I invited those two seminary students to come back the next Sunday. And one of them turned to me and said, well, it may be God's giving us a sign that this is not the place for us. The, the fact that the heater was broken was God's sign because they weren't comfortable enough. And I always see this, God doesn't care about your comfort. He cares about your conviction. He cares about your heart. Uh, he doesn't care much about our comfort. You know, our sister church in the Philippines that Dan and Kathy and, uh, began to, uh, to plant and is there today. We continue to support it. It's called First Faith Baptist Church. It's in a place called So Oak in Iloilo. That's where my wife is from, the, the province of Iloilo. And they have a different concept of comfort than you and I have. Uh, I'll show you a picture this is them. Now, Pastor June is over on the right. He has his hand up. He's in the very back row, has his hand in the air. Do you see that? Uh, and he regularly watches. And Pastor June, if you're watching this morning, thank you for watching. And um, that's his congregation there, or at least some of them. Now, you'll notice behind Pastor June's hand, there are Christmas decorations. And uh, in the Philippines, that means it's somewhere between June and December. Uh, they love December, uh, excuse me, they love Christmas in the Philippines. I had one of my church members leave after the first service and she was talking to me on the front porch and she said for years she had gone to a church that just, there were, there were issues and one of them was they didn't celebrate Christmas. They didn't do a lot of things, but one of the things they didn't do, they didn't celebrate Easter or Christmas. 
And so she, she, she enjoyed it being here, seeing all the Christmas decorations. And I won't say the name of that denomination, but I doubt that they've done very well in the Philippines because Filipinos love Christmas. And so there they are there, amen. Now I'll tell you, they have a concrete floor. You may say that's bad, but in fact it's good. When we first started there, Dan and Kathy could tell you there was no concrete at all, it was just dirt. And we went one year on a mission trip there and they had just poured that flooring uh, that week and it was just barely dry. You, you, are you comfortable in your padded chairs? Well, in the Philippines, in every church I've ever been in the Philippines, it's these cheap plastic chairs. Do you see that over here on the left? And I mean, they're cheap. And they sit in those chairs for hours and they don't complain. You can see it's a bamboo structure, by the way. It's got a metal ceiling there. And I don't know if you know anything about the hot sun in Texas in the summer and how hot it gets in your car because your roof is metal. Their roof is metal, and that Filipino sun boils down on that, on that church building, and the humidity, unlike here, the humidity there is at least 80% most of the time, and so it's a, it's a sweat box in there. And do they have air conditioning? Yes, they do have air conditioning. It's right there. Do you see it? It's a little oscillating fan that's on the wall. And in all the years, so we go there, we Americans, and some of you have been with me, we go there and we sit in there and we're just glowing. I mean, we're shiny because we're just sweating buckets. All of our clothes are saturated because it's so hot in there. And in all the times I've been there, I've never yet had one Filipino say to me, I don't think I, God wants me to come here because it's just too hot in here. <laughs> they just live with it. They deal with it because comfort is not the reason that they went to church. So your first and greatest consideration should be, does God want me here, not what do I want? It shouldn't be anything else. Does God want me here? If God wants you there, that's where you need to go, period. I saw another post on Facebook recently, and this is the actual image I did a capture for you, and it's entitled, Seven Things That Will Keep Me From Coming Back to Your Church. And listen to the list. Number one, they refuse to see me. Two, they don't offer me a smile. Three, they neglect offering me help. Four, they abstain from introducing yourself to me. Five, they forget that I'm a person who wants to be known. Six, they ignore my boundaries. Or seven, they forget my name. Now I read that and I certainly want us to be a friendly church. I want us to greet people when they come in. Members, I want you to greet people. If you don't know if they're a visitor or a member, it doesn't matter. Greet them anyway. I don't care if they're first time or their 500th time here. You greet them lovingly. I want you to remember their name. And I should remember your name. And sometimes I'll fail at that. Forgive me for that, by the way. But did you notice in the list something was not right? I, I read this list and I thought, what's wrong with that list? Yeah, it, what's wrong with it? It's all about me. God is never mentioned in that list ever. He never even comes up. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Your first directive is to go where God tells you to go. Your life isn't your own. It belongs to God. And I believe that Bible teaches, because it does teach very clearly, that God has a direction and a plan and a place for your life. And I don't mean just generally philosophically. I mean specifically. Now generally, of course, 
You and I are to bring God glory. You and I are to have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. We're to submit to his lordship and we're to, to love God back. That's our, generally speaking, that's our purpose in life. But I believe the Bible teaches specifically there are times and places that God wants us to go and God has a plan for where he wants you to serve. And that place may not be where you want to serve, but God has that plan for you Anyway, imagine if our missionaries only wanted to go to places that they enjoyed. If they called the Home and Mission Board or the International Mission Board and they said, hey, we went to this church this week in Africa and it was hot. You know, they weren't very friendly. I think we'll go home. Well, it doesn't matter whether they were friendly or if it was comfortable or not. God called them there and they understand that. And you and I are missionaries for God as well. Your criteria must be God's direction alone. Are you going to say on Judgment Day, yes, Lord, I know you wanted me to go to that church, but the preacher forgot my name. I don't think he'll buy that. Secondly, is the doctrine sound? Is the doctrine sound? Does God want you to go there? And is the doctrine sound? Now, I will acknowledge to you that no church is going to have perfect doctrine, including this church. Now, we search the Word of God, and we stick with the Word of God as much as we can. I believe the Bible should be the backbone of any message that I preach, not just something that I mention. It should be the backbone of the message, and I try very hard to do that. And I know our Sunday school teachers and our small group leaders try very hard to stay true to the Word of God, and there should be sound doctrine in church. If you go somewhere and they're teaching nutty things, no, that should not be your church, okay? Unless God just tells you, he warns you and says, look, they're, they're going to teach you some crazy things. I want you to go there and change that church. And by the way, there are people that God calls to church to change the church. There are, and by the way, if you come here and nobody smiles at you, nobody remembers your name, maybe God called you to come here, join the church, and you start smiling at people, you start shaking their hands, and you start remembering their names. We welcome you to do that, by the way. Now, that's no excuse, church members, for not shaking hands. But is the doctrine sound? I guarantee there are churches. In fact, there, there's a church in this area. They teach still that 1990s health and wealth gospel that if you're faithful to God, he's going to make you rich. That's bad theology. You know, this idea. And so if you go to a church and all the staff is driving around in brand new Teslas, don't go there. <laughs> it's a bad church. It's bad doctrine. Sorry, Chris, you're out of love. <laughs> is the doctrine sound? He did not know I was going to preach this when he said that. Um, but I have no regrets. So um, you're not getting your Tesla. Decades ago, we had a modest senior adult class, and there are very few people here that were still here when Cherry and I came here. This is um, in 1998, back in the, do you remember the 20th century? Back in the 20th century. That was a good century. There were no pandemics or anything. It was great. And so we came here, and there was, we had a senior adult class, and we didn't have anybody to teach the senior adult class. Nobody would step up to teach it. We had one little lady, her name was Wanda Ross. Bless her heart, she's in heaven now, but she was willing to teach the class. 
And, um, and when she started teaching that senior adult class, we have another family. It was the husband who was a young man. He was in his 30s, about my age. And he led his family to immediately to leave the church out of that heresy was being taught because he said a woman must not teach a man. And so he, he led his family out of the church. The wife later told me that they went to visit a few other churches and their doctrines weren't any better, so they just stopped going to church altogether. Wow. Well, by the way, Paul did say that, that a woman must not teach a man. He lived in a society where teaching at the time in the first century was authoritative, like a pastor, and it was an authority issue. But it wasn't just an authority issue. By the way, it's not really authority anymore. I don't think any of you, when you go to Sunday school class, you consider your teacher to have authority over you. You know, back in the 18th, 19th century here in the United States, even a school teacher had tremendous authority over the students, much more so than they do today. Um, and so that perception has really changed over the centuries. And so we don't really consider that an authoritative thing because you're free, as you sit in there in that class, to say, hey, I disagree with that. They, they didn't do that back in the first century. The teacher was revered. And so it was a, a, a situation of authority, but also it was a situation of responsibility. It wasn't that Christ or that Paul was saying, ladies, you don't have any rights or what you have to say is not important. What he was saying is that a man was to take responsibility in the church. And for that Sunday school class, no one else would do it. So bless her heart, Wanda stood up and said she would do it, and she made a fine teacher. I also, and I've told you this, and I know there's Daryl and Lisa are here. They, they were here that first year as well. We had one deacon, and I know I've told you this story before. We had one deacon, and we didn't have any other deacons. Now, Daryl has served as a deacon for 22 years, 22 and a half years, a long time. He was one of the first wave of deacons. And so I don't remember, I don't, when did you become a deacon? Do you remember? Yeah, so, so we only had one deacon and I needed more deacons. And of the deacons, and I won't mention names, I, we, you know, I had a list of all the deacons and all the men of the church and I, we, we nominated some guys and they didn't, they didn't sign up. And I had them come into my office one at a time. I don't think Daryl did. I, I, I'm going to say I'm certain he didn't because he's here. So, <laughs> But they came into my office one at a time and said, Pastor, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I don't think they realized that all the other guys were coming in telling me the same thing. And so I started telling members of the church, look, if the men won't lead, I'm going to ask the women to do it. Now, I, I don't believe there's a biblical precedent for female deacons because there isn't. Uh, there, there is a servant. Uh, was it Phoebe? The, the word deacon in Greek is the word, excuse me, the word servant in Greek is diakonos. It's where we get deacon from. So it's hard to tell in the New Testament sometimes if you're talking about the, the office of deacon or simply saying that they're a servant because most of the time diakonos is in the New Testament. It's translated as servant. But I believe that the men should step up and lead. And so I began to tell them, hey, if you will, I'll do what I need to do. Well, we had some men that had a change of heart. They came back and said, okay, I changed my mind, I'll serve. And so we got our first body of deacons uh, there at First Baptist Church. And it was once that leadership was in place, now it wasn't a perfect body of deacons, but it was a men willing to serve and willing to leave in the church, lead in the church. Our church began to grow. 
And so God blesses you when you step up and you're willing to lead. And what I believe that God is saying to the ladies is, ladies, you shouldn't have to do what men are supposed to do. And in church, and I'll tell you this, and every pastor will tell you this, the ones that do the most in churches are often the ladies. Ladies, you are relentless workers. God bless you. But men, and, and we, by the way, we have some godly men that are willing to serve. Thank you for doing that. Some of you, if you're thinking that God is challenging you to step up to leadership, you answer that call. Come to me and say, Pastor, how can I serve this church? And I'll be happy to share with you ways that you can do that. So you ask the question, is their doctrine sound? Because there are all kinds of things. Oh, terrible, terrible doctrines out there. Be careful about that. Third, is the church bearing fruit? This is the only, the, the last one that I'll share with you today is the church bearing fruit. When you're looking for a church home, there are two kinds of churches. There are dead churches and alive churches. And the difference between a dead church and a live church is a live church is bearing good fruit. Now, I didn't make that up. That doesn't come from me. That comes from Christ himself. In John chapter 15, verse 5, for example, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me or abides in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he's like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. I've been here long enough to see churches thrown into the fire. It doesn't happen a lot, but it does happen. And that, not that they're bad people at all. It's just that they're not bearing fruit in the kingdom of God. You and I are here for a purpose, and that purpose is to bear much good fruit. Now, again, it may be there is an exception to the rule that God is calling you to a fruitless church to help them begin to bear good fruit. And as I always say, if you're asking yourself the question, what is good fruit? I'm going to share with you, and I do this frequently, just quickly, a few things that, that qualify as good fruit. First is the fruit of salvation. Colossians chapter 1, verse 6. Paul says, all over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing. There's that word fruit. And growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in its truth. So he says the gospel is bearing fruit. The gospel is the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's about forgiveness of sins and being reborn through Jesus Christ and receiving eternal life. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says it's bearing good fruit. You go to a church where nobody ever gets saved. Oh, that's not a fruit-bearing church. And for us, it may be that we had lots of salvations 10 years ago or five years ago or even last year. God is asking, what are we doing here and now? I thank God he has brought so many to salvation just in the last few months here. I see God working in this church to bear good fruit. But I want to challenge you. I believe that there are more out there that need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, that need to be saved. And God calls us to bear that good fruit. Secondly, there's the fruit of worship. 
There's the fruit of worship. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15 says it this way. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. The fruit of lips that confess his name. There's that word. Did you know that your lips on Sunday morning bear fruit? Now, depending on how good you sing or how bad you sing, you may not think it's very fruitful, but it doesn't talk about tone here. You can be tone deaf. What it is talking about is sincere praise to God. A sacrifice of praise. The fruit of lips that confess his name. What happens in worship is important in this church and in any church. When Sherry and I came here that first Sunday morning, I know I said this, we, you know, there were a lot of problems in the church and a lot of challenges in the church. It was a little building across the street, but we noticed something. It just popped out to both of us. People were just worshiping in that church a lot more than the previous church had been at. They just seemed to really enjoy worshiping. And that's something I've noticed for the last 23 years. You enjoy worshiping. Most of you enjoy that. And God is watching you. The difference between just ritualistically going through the motions of another song, another sermon, and really being into the worship. Right now, you looking in your Bible, you marking these passages, you writing those notes, that is a part of your worship to God. That is, that is what we do on Sunday mornings. And so he says, the fruit of lips that confess his name, the fruit of worship. Next is the fruit of love. There's no way around this. There are no loopholes. If this is not a loving church, don't come here. Unless, unless God calls you to come here and you instill love into the church. In John chapter 15, verse 6, this is the very night that Jesus is going to be betrayed and arrested. His last conversation with his disciples, he says this to them and to you and me. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. I shared this while I go. And then the next verse, he says this, this is my command, love one another, love each other. It's interesting. So he says that middle sentence, then the Father will give you whatever I ask in my, in my name. We tend to remember that. Uh, that's the result, but the fruit that he's talking about, that you go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, is connected to verse 17. This is my command that you love each other. Love is fruit bearing. And if you don't love, if you're not bearing the fruit of love in your life, your life is going to be miserable, whether in church or out of church. If you're unloving at home, if you're unloving at your workplace, if you're unloving at school, youth, if you're unloving at school, if you're unloving wherever you are, you're not going to be bearing fruit in your life. And you show me or you look to see those who are most blessed in their life. If you think about people in your life that you, you just adore the most, chances are they are wonderful, loving people. And as a church, we will succeed or fail to the extent that we love one another the fruit of love. And then lastly, and again, I have to mention this, the fruit of our attitudes, the fruit of our attitudes, Galatians chapter five, verse 22, that famous passage about the fruits of the spirit, talk about our attitude, but the fruit of the spirit is love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, 
and self-control. Against such things there is no law. It, Paul was saying, you can do these things. These aren't illegal. They're not going to make anybody mad. Nobody's going to report you for being nice. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We are called to have the right attitude in our life. Now, having said that, you might be asking yourself the question, and I've seen this lately on social media, why join a church at all? Why do I need church? In fact, I've seen people actually say this recently, not from this church, but on social media, they pose the question or they say, make the statement or the claim, the Bible doesn't actually tell me to go to church. It doesn't tell me I have to go to church. And so there's articles about that. You can read that debate. Should, should I go to church or not? Does the Bible even tell us? Are we off base here? Well, the answer is, of course, the Bible tells you to go to church. I don't know what Bible they're reading. There are multiple passages, I mean, multiple passages that describe the church and talk about the fellowship of the church, the worship of the church, and how important it is for us to come together. But they begin to have a problem, even in the first century. The writer of the Hebrews, uh, uh, to the Hebrews, uh, he, that is Christians or people who had converted to Christianity and that were from a Hebrew past, and there was a problem with heresy going throughout the church. And so the writer to the Hebrews dealt with that, and that's why we call it Hebrews, great theology there. And so he dealt with this problem that some of them were dropping out of churches, weren't going anywhere anymore. And so in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 25, he says this, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. God wants you in church. God has a purpose and plan for you to be in the church. And there are things that you will learn, fellowship that you will have, opportunities for ministry that you will find in church that you will never get anywhere else. God wants you to be in church. For people say to me, why should, I get, why should I go to church? I say, well, why should you get married? You can live together. I mean, the Bible says you shouldn't do that. You're supposed to get married. But other than that, why should you get married? Well, there's something about walking down the aisle and making your commitment to each other. I wanted to hear that from Cherry. She wanted to hear it from me. I wanted that kind of relationship, and so did she, that we were committed to one another. Now, that's a little different than joining a church. You know, marriage is until death do you part. By the way, I hope you're here for the rest of your life. But God understands that sometimes people move to other areas and they can't do that. But as long as you're here, while you're here, God wants you to be committed to a local body of believers. Commitment is important. You, many of you have jobs and careers where you have to sign a contract with your employer periodically. That's your commitment to them and their commitment to you. And you cannot be hired there unless you're willing to commit. And so I encourage you to consider committing to this church. It's not difficult. It doesn't cost anything. You just have to come down and say, Pastor, I'd like to join the church. That's about it. That's not too tough, is it? And uh, you can unjoin it just as quick. I, I hope you don't, but you can. It's just kind of a verbal agreement between us and you that we're going to be a family together in the kingdom for his glory in this place. It would be two years in college before I actually found a church home back in 1984. It was Southside Baptist Church in Abilene, Texas, the first church home I'd ever had 
since my home church in Graham, since I grew up. So when I found Southside Baptist Church, whoa, what a wonderful church. The pastor embraced me. I was a skinny kid. I didn't know anything. Dale Hills his name. Dale taught me to preach. He taught me how to, to preach a revival. He taught me how to preach a, a wedding. He taught me how to preach a funeral. And he taught me how to pastor. He taught me how to lead. All of those things that I share with you now and the person that I am now is largely because of Pastor Dale and his church embracing me and helping me and teaching me all of those days. What a wonderful church. We want to be that kind of mentor to you. We are called to be that kind of family to you. We want to help you. And I'm not perfect. And again, forgive me for any of those times that I'm not. But we desire, I desire for you and I to worship God together, to learn and to grow and to be God's family. Will you consider that? Pray with me. Father, we come to you today. We want to say thank you for the opportunity to be a part of your kingdom. It is by your mercy. I pray, Father, that first and foremost, that we would do what you call us to do. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to you. That's what lordship means. You call the shots and we obey. And so, Father, I pray that you would lead us and that we would go where you want us to go. We would serve where you want us to serve and how you want us to serve. Help us to have teachable hearts. Father, I pray that you would give us discernment to know what is sound theology and what is not. Father, I thank you for this church. I praise you have given us an opportunity to do our part in your kingdom, to win the loss, to glorify your name, to serve this community, and to love the people around us, that we would continue to do that in abundance. We pray that if Christ were to pen a letter to First Baptist Church in Azel today, as he did for the seven churches in Asia Minor, that that letter would be commendation and not condemnation. That that letter would commend us for bearing much good fruit. And I pray, Father, that you would help us and that we would submit to your call to do that very thing. Make us fruit-bearing people. Fruit that will last an eternity. That will make our lives matter even if the world forgets. Because you remember. No one's looking around as you're praying right where you are. Can I challenge you this morning? Are you looking for a church home? We want you to know you're welcome here. We believe this is a place where God can be fruitful through you. Where you can bear good fruit. No pressure. We will love you and accept you whether you come down and join or not. But I want to invite you to do that. Just come down and say, Pastor, I'd like to join. I want to commit. It could be that God is calling you to accept Christ right now, to surrender to him and become a believer in Christ. Just come down and say, Pastor, I want to give my life to Christ. I want to live for him. If God is calling, this invitation, this opportunity is for you. No one's looking around. Would you stand? As everybody prays, all heads are bowed, all eyes are closed. And as you pray, right now, you come.